Hello and welcome to Country Stride, the podcast dedicated to the landscapes, people and heritage of Cumbria and the Lake District. I'm here in the middle of this balmy September wave of weather. People swimming in the lakes, swimming in the tarns and out enjoying the fells under perfect blue skies. And I'm in the company of author, illustrator and our guide for a short walk today, Mark Richards. Hello, Mark. Hello, David. Well, Keswick never got better weather ever. It's the beginning of autumn, really, the beginning of tinging two of the trees, but blue sky, heather's still out, there's a gentle warm breeze, it's gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous. You've hinted there where we are today, Mark. We're in Keswick, and rather unusually, we are outside a very special home. Talk to us about the house we're outside of, Mark. Well, it's called the Old Vicarage, but it was the vicarage for Crosswaite Church, which is the old church at Kentigan, uh, Keswick's central religious centre, which must be really ancient. There's the references to the 6th century associated with this church. So this setting, this vicarage, this is a very important religious centre, but our conversation today isn't about religion strictly. No, so this is a home and it's in private hands now, of course, but what a lovely place. And it was home for many, many years to Canon Hardwick Rawnsley, see Country Strides past. But it also was home to another person, somebody who very few of us know much about, somebody whose life is encased in a certain amount of mystery. It's her story that we're going to tell today. Who is today's podcast about, Mark? Eliza Lynn Linton, a remarkable woman, somebody who I'm really longing to hear all about. And we have three wonderful guests to express many layers of this very complex lady. Eliza Lynn Linton then, a prolific self-taught writer, the first ever salaried female journalist in this country. After a very traumatic childhood, she mixed among the literary elite of her time. Her relationship with both religion and her sexuality were absolutely fascinating. She caused a huge uproar for changing her very strident feminist views on their head and becoming an outspoken critic of feminism. A very complicated woman, but also, Mark, and critically for those of us who love the lakes, spent a lot of her life here. Keswick was her spiritual home. However far away she went, that love of the lakes never left her, and she authored one of the most beautiful books about the lakes ever written. I'm looking forward to learning more about the lake country. That's it, the lake country, almost forgotten now as is Eliza Lynn herself. So we're hoping that our three guests will be able to shine a light on this remarkable woman. And who are our guests today, Mark? Our first guest is Philippa Harrison, who is the host to us today in the Vicarage. We've also got Nicola Lawson, curator at the Keswick Museum, and academic Sue Wilkinson. A great lineup waiting for us in, I believe, the drawing room of this very handsome historic house. Let's go and meet the three of them and begin today's Country Stride. (laughs) 
Well, I'm standing at this moment in the drawing room of the old vicarage, and I'm looking out of the windows, looking south across the most amazing prospect. I can see down to the jaws of Borrowdale. I can see Cat Bells and the Newlands Fells and Causey Pike and Crag Hill. On a gloriously sunny day, it's a fabulous setting. One can understand why anybody with a romantic heart would love to live here and comprehend the beating heart of the Lake District from the wonderful town of Keswick. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to introduce or let my guests introduce themselves. I've got three lovely ladies here with me today. Nicola Lawson, Sue Wilkinson and Philippa Harrison. I'd like to know a little bit about yourselves. Nicola, what's your background and what drew you into the world of Eliza Lynn Linton? Hi, yes, so I'm the curator at Keswick Museum and it was our collection that really drew me into Eliza's world and her works. We've got some early poetry notebooks of Eliza's and some early copies of her novels in our collection um, and a beautiful copy of her book The Lake Country as well. And I thought she was an interesting character. We'd covered her previously in our Her Story exhibition, a little bit with other local women of note that focused quite a lot on the contradiction between her anti-feminist writings and the fact that she lived in quite a unusual way for a woman of the 19th century and it was finding out that at the same period as she was getting known for writing these polemics against women getting the right to vote she'd actually signed a petition in favour of the right to vote that was when I was hooked. Quite understand me. An interesting tightrope she obviously walked. Sue, now, Sue Wilkinson, it's lovely to see you, Sue. Could you give us a little bit about your own background and your pathway towards Eliza? Hi, I'm a retired academic, originally trained in psychology, and at the moment I'm doing an MA, just purely for interest, in literature, romanticism and the English Lake District at the University of Cumbria at Ambleside. Quick plug, it's a brilliant MA if anybody fancies doing it. I got interested in trying to uncover little-known or lesser-known women writers, and one of those was Eliza Lynn Linton. And the more I read her work and scholarship about her work, the more intrigued I became and the less I understood her, I think. But the one thing that really hit me between the eyes and I absolutely love is her book, The Lake Country. And I hope we can talk more about that in a bit. Absolutely. That, that will be a little bit of a focus I will play with later. Anyway, Philippa Harrison, wonderful to uh, be in your company because this is your home. Could you tell us a little bit your personal background before you move into who Eliza was to you? Hi. I spent all my life as a publisher and I was born in Cartmore Vicarage, so I've got two reasons to be here. One is I love old vicarages and the other is, and admittedly I didn't know this when I came, I discovered that Eliza Lynn Linton was the first woman ever to be paid as a salaried journalist. So from my background, that is, of course, completely riveting. Once I discovered she was entirely self-educated, and exactly as Sue said, you understand her less the more you know rather than more. I mean, she was a fascinating woman who overcame one of the nastiest childhoods I've come across. Well, thank you for that overview of you. Now, I'd like to get an overview of the times that we're talking about here. And I think, Nicola, you can address this best of all. 
the most important thing to view Eliza in terms of is the position of women of her status in the 19th century. In the 19th century, there were very prescribed gender roles for middle-class white women like Eliza. These would have generally been to stay inside the home, become a wife, a mother, domestic duties. She wouldn't have been expected to go into the men's sphere that she ended up in of the world of work, journalism, trying to influence people's thoughts. Uh, she was very much expected to be a housewife girls would often not be educated in the same way as boys so it's definitely interesting the way that she educated herself and the world that she moved into it wasn't usual for a woman of her status at that time. Philippa you mentioned Eliza had the most awful childhood she had various siblings what was her early life? Just to give the context her father the vicar married a rather better-born person. The Lynns were rather looked down on by that family. And her father was the vicar of Carlisle, so they were extremely interconnected. Lynn had already been given a job up here at Corbeck, where he was a rector, which means he got a lot more money there. And then he was given this place, which was considered wonderful because of where it was. He arrived in 1820, and Eliza arrived two years later, uh, the 12th child. Briefly, she was looked after by her mother, who died almost immediately, and then by her elder sister, who died a year later. And she was born into a house in which... I'm just going to read the words she uses. These are the words she uses about her father's behaviour and grief. Very few people came to the house, and it was stalked by a kind of hysterical emotionalism. The children would be woken to the echo of his midnight prayers... The sound of his passionate weeping mingled in sobbing unison with the moaning of wind in the trees, and this added an awful kind of mystery to his character as he searched for never-found peace. So, not much fun. The father also made it absolutely clear Eliza had no education whatsoever. The view was, according to Eliza, that she was instructed to have no opinion of her own, or if she was unfortunate enough to have one, to keep it to herself. Her father even knocked her down at 17 when she was making a Republican remark. She was beaten, she says weakly, and then hidden in the cupboard under the stairs here. And Canon Rawnsley, who was perhaps the most famous person who lived in this house, maintained that every time he walked past that cupboard, he could not but think of it. Could you, Nicola, describe something of the nature of this lady? At Keswick Museum, we've got some notebooks, really just exercise books from 1845-46. So Eliza's in her early to mid-twenties at this point and she's writing embryonic poems. Uh, they're not great literature, but I think they do give an interesting insight into the author that she wanted to be and into her mental state at the time. Certainly she did feel isolated and I think what comes across a lot in the poems is uh, a lot of depression, there's a real fixation on death and motifs of illness, clearly grappling with the religion and the doubt. So I think that gives you a bit of a picture of what her mental health was like at that time. Her solace was partly the countryside, which she was tremendously connected to, so that every day she'd go down and collect the two cows that came up to be milked, and it was her favourite part of the day. So there were compensations, but... Essentially, she was extremely unhappy and at some level, the rest of her life is 
connected to trying to deal with the two linked but opposed emotions of rage and hurt. She was connected with Hartley Coleridge and they're quite a near neighbours. Yes, the next hill down, as it were, is where Southey and Coleridge lived and all the children had innumerable picnics together, which made everybody happy. But the person that she remembered for the rest of her life as being particularly kind to her was Hartley Coleridge, who, as I suspect everybody will know, himself had quite a bumpy life, and I think it's really interesting that she remembers that. Eliza, in her early 20s, had a very significant emotional attachment to somebody. Could you explain it to us? Yes, this was an older married couple who moved for a short while to Windy Brow, the property where William Wordsworth and Dorothy first got back together again after a long separation. And Eliza had a passionate relationship with the woman who was a Polish émigré. She pseudonymizes her in her fictionalised autobiography as Adeline Dalrymple. And she spent a great deal of time in the company of this woman, apparently gazing into her eyes, holding her hand, almost worshipping her. If I can just read a few lines from the, the autobiography... I used to want to kneel to her, to kiss the hem of her garment, to make myself her footstool, her slave, so that I could be of use to her. She laid her white and scented hand on mine, so brown and large and bony, and bent her head till she looked full and straight in my eyes. Her hand closed on mine with an almost convulsive grasp. It burnt like fire, and the diamonds on her fingers and her throat flashed as if in their own internal light. I only felt a dumb kind of desire to carry my life to her hands and worship her. Clearly this was something that made a very deep impression on this young woman and something I think that she carried with her for the rest of her life. And there's some evidence that she had a nervous breakdown when this woman left Keswick suddenly and she didn't know where she'd gone and they had no further contact. It disturbed Eliza enough that she virtually broke down and her need to leave home got larger and larger. And she'd already started to write her first book, which, given the extraordinary self-education that uh, Sue talked about before, was set in ancient Egypt. And a great friend of her father's came to stay and persuaded him that he would look after Eliza in London so she could go down and go to the British Museum and pursue her novel. And as she left... Eliza was ecstatic. She wrote, I set my face towards the promised land where I was to find work, fame, liberty and happiness. I think the prime motivator for Eliza to leave the Lake District and go to London was to escape her family background and the very restrictive social sphere in which she was embedded. She wanted to pursue a career, she wanted to be a writer and it was more important to be able to do that and to escape her family than to remain in her beloved Lake District at this point. So Eliza's moved into London uh, with a great ambition to be a, a writer, a professional writer, to develop her skills. Nicola, can you expand on that process? She moves to London in 1845, and as Philip has talked about, she's working on her first novel, which is published in 1847. 
The year after that, 1848, is the year when she becomes the first salaried female journalist in England. Women previously to this had had singular articles in the freelance way within newspapers, but she was the first one to actually be employed fixed term at a newspaper office, which was a huge achievement for a woman at that time. She's breaking the mould. And there is a little bit from her fictionalised autobiography. I'm not sure entirely how uh, true to life it is, but it's a great story. It talks about the interview. The interviewer says to her, So, you are the little girl who has written that queer book and want to be one of the press gang, are you? He said, half smiling and speaking in a jerky and unprepared manner. I took him in his humour and smiled too. Yes, I am the woman, I said. Woman, you call yourself? I call you a whippersnapper, he answered, always good-humouredly. I say, though, youngster, you never wrote all that rubbish yourself. Some of your brothers helped you. You never scratched all those queer classics and mythology into your own numb skull without help. At your age, it is impossible. It may be impossible, I laughed. At the same time, it is true. At that moment, this 27-year-old self-educated girl had moved from being on £30 a year to 20 guineas a month. For the next two years, she was not merely sufficient. She was supremely happy and became positively well off. From then onwards, was taken up by all the literary society of London. Sue, could you tell us a little bit about Eliza's life in London? She lived in a small private boarding house, which was close to the reading room of the British Museum, where she, she often worked. And she gradually became part of London literary life. So this is how she describes that period and how she actually managed to do that. At this time, I went much into society. My social place was that which naturally belongs to a young woman of good birth, who, if she has not quite won her spurs, may yet someday do great things, who knows, and who has good names at her back. The tower of strength my grandfather the bishop and my uncle the dean were to me. What humiliating snobs we are. I became acquainted with a few of the leaders of thought already established and some who were still preparing for the time when they too should lead and no longer follow. Some of the people in those literary circles were really famous to us now. George Eliot, Charles Dickens, she wrote for his Household Words, Anthony Trollope. She was definitely well within that literary society at the time. And she came to have a very close relationship with another writer called Walter Landor, which I think Philippa can tell us a bit more about. Landor was a famous intellectual and poet of his day and was living without his family in Bath. And he became, in a way, Eliza's good father, an alternative role model. And for the rest of his life, that was a role that he carried out with care and thought, and they continued to be connected. When she met him, she was just a sort of simple fan. And she said, I was introduced to an ill-dressed, yet striking-looking old man with unbrushed apple pie boots, a plain shirt front, like a nightgown, not a shirt, but an old man with a face full of the majesty of thought and an air of mental grandeur all through. And when I was told who he was, I broke into an ardent exclamation of joy. Landor obviously rather liked this from a young woman, and from then onwards they had a sort of consciously in their letters daughter-father relationship and he invited her to Bath where he did the equivalent of bringing her out. Uh, he gave a lot of balls for her and was her chaperone. 
we have this picture of this young lady, really, who was thriving, writing in great abundance and really on top of her game. But suddenly, it all came tumbling down. Absolutely. There's um, a period of her life in 1851 where two awful things happen to her in quick succession. She is let go from her job at the Morning Chronicle, her journalism job. We're not sure entirely why. Some people have speculated that her employers had seen an early manuscript of her novel Realities, which came out the same year, which dealt with a lot of issues that weren't necessarily expected from her or from a woman writer at that time. This novel advocated for divorce reform and for women's property ownership on marriage. Lots of hot topic things of the day. She said she thought that it was as good as Jane Eyre and it would be her Jane Eyre and unfortunately she had another massive setback in that it was received very badly. It was criticised from all quarters and it took a massive toll on her mental health, certainly those twin hits in the same year of losing her journalism job and this novel that she felt was going to be the peak of her achievements. So what Eliza did was come back to the Lake District her tail between her legs to try to recover. And one of the things that had particularly hurt her was that in this work full of, as she saw it, the right answers for women, the publisher had thought there was far too much about sexual freedom for women and it was very heavily expurgated and the person who did that was George Eliot. She was used to her father denying her capacity for thought but to have a woman she much admired must have been pretty tough, and they had a very tricky relationship after that. About a year later, it took her a year to sort of recover, she went off to a much worse job in France. But suddenly, in the middle of that, Charles Dickens invited her to write for Household Words, an extremely famous paper at the time, and one that she wrote for for the rest of her life, as Justice Dickens went on being a friend for the rest of her life. Almost immediately after that, her father is very ill, in fact, dies very soon, and she has to come back to the Lake District again, where she meets the Lintons. So here we are, in her mid-30s, Eliza's come back to the family home here at Crosswaite in Keswick, and her life is about to change again, Sue. Yes, she's introduced to the Linton family. Initially, she becomes very friendly with Emily Linton, and then with Emily's husband, William James Linton. William James Linton is living at Brantwood, pursuing his profession as a well-known wood engraver and also editing a Republican magazine. And Eliza becomes involved with that magazine and her first article for it is in praise of Mary Wollstonecraft. Subsequently, Emily, William Linton's wife, dies. And before she dies, she apparently exacts a promise from Eliza that Eliza will look after the seven children. Eliza feels she has a duty to do that, and the only way she can see of doing it is to marry William Linton. So that's what she does. She marries William Linton and takes his family for her own. The relationship between the children and the husband and wife and Eliza was complicated. It, it started off with her pouring her energies into their magazine and indeed when it went bankrupt she was the person who took all the financial 
loss. Eliza lost £1,500 by getting married from the will from her father. And by the end of her marriage, all her capital had gone. And while she was living towards her promise to take over the children and marry Linton, she wrote the following words in a story about young women taking on widows on small children for household words. Quote, Those restless burning fingers passing perpetually over her hand irritated her beyond self-command. When he held her, her teeth set hard and her nerves strung like cords. She felt sometimes as if she had killed him when he touched her. Now, is that somebody who doesn't know what they feel? Is it somebody who's suppressing what they feel? That's one of the essential questions of the whole of Eliza Linton's life. But when they did marry, they were initially quite happy. She put order into their lives, sent the boys to school, had a governess for the children, much to Linton's amusement, who found that unnecessary. She called him Manny, which is you know, quite an affectionate thing. And briefly, it looked as though the decision was a nice, simple, sensible one. Do you want to add something, Nicola? The most interesting part of that relationship to me is Eliza's relationship with the Linton children. She clearly did feel like a mother to them and she really loved them. And it seems to come across to me that that was what the basis of her decision to marry Linton was based on rather than love for him. She stayed in touch with his children throughout the rest of her life and I suspect there's a little something in that about her losing her mother at such a young age and then having such trauma from the way her father dealt with that. We get to this critical point I think where Eliza is about to start to write a book that she felt was very significant to her and it's very significant to this podcast The Lake Country. I wonder if Sue could expand on that. Eliza and William were living mainly in London at this point, but coming back to Brantwood and the Lakes for summers. And in the summer of 1863, they took an extended tour around the Lake District with the express purpose of writing a guidebook. Eliza would do the text and William would do the engravings to illustrate it. And the book, The Lake Country, was published a year later. Could you talk us through the book itself? Yes, I'd like to start with the preface, because in that, Eliza lays out what she sees the book as being and how it contrasts with previous guidebooks to the lakes um, in quite an amusing way. So she says, Green and West and Mrs Radcliffe and others of the picturesque school gave their absurdly exaggerated accounts of what they saw and perilled in these inhospitable regions, as it was then the fashion to call them. But when the reaction against Romanticism set in, and people had learnt for themselves that the ascent of Blencathra could be made without a fit of apoplexy and the necessity of bloodletting midway, and that Newlands was rather lonesome, but not in the least degree terrifying, then all this idealistic writing was at a discount, and only guidebooks containing useful roadside information were asked for. And she goes on to say, but this isn't useful roadside information either, that they wanted to treat the lake country with the love and knowledge, artistic and local, belonging of right to natives and old inhabitants. So they wanted to describe the general and the local history 
to put in what they thought would interest the reader while illustrating and describing the most beautiful places, the well-known and the less well-known. And she characterised the book overall as a love book to the world in the earnest desire for others to share in our experiences. What makes this book really special too? I think for me... It's the sheer lyricism of Eliza Lynn Linton's writing. Her love for the Lake District shines through in her descriptions. In addition, it's remarkably scholarly. She weaves through a lot of local history and customs. Um, she has appendices on provincialisms, on botany, on geology, tables of the mountains, lakes, waterfalls and rainfall. Not all of those are things she's researched herself, but she's found them and included them as part of this picture that she's painting. Overall, it's, it's the quality of the writing and the way it evokes the landscape that stands out. Being a, a pen artist, the Linton engravings immediately appealed to me. As a lapsed, as it were, professional publisher, for me, it's actually the best physical object that I've seen of a book in the Lake Country. The production standards are completely extraordinary. And I also think Linton's engravings are masterly and very much part of the feeling of the whole thing and the fact that it was a love book and it was them combined doing it and their mutual knowledge of the Lake District was so thorough and historic, adds to the drawings. I could give one quote, uh, which just shows how much she loved her own place in the Lake District and the old vicarage. She describes what she calls the Crosswaite Valley, but most people would call the Keswick Vale. Dermot Water is the gem of the whole Lake District. Whatever there is of beauty special to the other districts is here in ripest fullness. The Vale of Keswick is the opened rose itself, and all the other lakes and mountains are the leaves and buds. And Borrowdale is the heart of the rose, the inner golden recess where the bees seek their food and the butterflies their enjoyment, the point where so many lines converge and where we take rest for wider flight beyond, which seems to me a pretty full-hearted endorsement of where you were born. It's hard to pick any one passage from this book because it's such a treasure chest of beautiful descriptions and information. I love the Derwent Water passage that Philippa read, but here's another one. This is describing descending from Scorfell Pike down to Wastwater, seeing the screes, the Wastwater screes for the first time. We finally got opposite the screes. Wonderfully soft and velvet-like was the late summer verdure on them. Great brown velvets, green satins and gold-coloured silks. Set among the grey stones with a contrast that heightened both. And wonderfully glacier-like the form. You can almost see where the primeval waters once rushed down that steep side, which looks like a wave broken down at the top. The channels in them, like lava veins flowing among the velvet green, all leaf-shaped, like those fan-shaped coralline forms seen in the sea sand, and large stones and red marks as if the earth had been skinned to the blood veins beneath and the great skeleton ribs shown one by one. The screes stand sheer against the lake, almost as straight as if ruled with a line. The other side is gracious, with little bays and promontories, but the screes rise straight and sharp and suffer no tender play whatever at their feet. 
We're leaving behind this fabulous book, which I think is a remarkable tome, even to this day. But Eliza's marriage to William is suffering by this time. Yes, the marriage never seemed to be one founded on true love. I think Eliza went into it for quite practical reasons, and at this point they decide to separate in the 1860s. So they haven't been married very long at all. William goes to America, he takes the children with him, which I think was more of a wrench for Eliza than the end of their marriage, Um, and she begins writing novels again. Her first incendiary article against the new woman, or if you want to call it feminism, was written very interestingly just a year after Linton had gone to America, so her marriage unequivocally and publicly had failed. And she writes something called The Girl of the Period, and for the rest of her life elaborates this theme, becomes more strident about it, even hysterical, eventually arguing that a history of civilizations showed that their success was in inverse proportion to the social freedoms of women. So that's quite a thing for somebody who thought Wollstonecraft was the bravest book that had ever been written. And when asked, you know, how she could do that, given her own life, it goes back to the things we talked about right at the beginning, about hurt and anger. She said she thinks she made a mistake. She had been an unhappy woman. It had been a hard and tough life. And it would have been much better to have been quiet and married. She didn't have the makeup for that. She led the life that she chose and I think was much more likely to be unhappy of what she did than living the other way. But that was the feeling that she'd continued to receive too much dislike and disapprobation, which, given the strength of her views and the changing views, is, of course, not surprising. Another thing that comes across in The Girl of the Period is she rails against falseness and seemingness. So she says, for example, the girl of the period is a creature who dyes her hair and paints her face as the first articles of her personal religion, whose sole idea of life is plenty of fun and luxury, whose dress is the object of such thought and intelligence as she possesses. Her main endeavour is to outvie her neighbours in the extravagance of fashion. So it was partly about what she saw happening around her in terms of the way women were dressing and what they were starting to do, and that that was not something that she was herself doing or finding acceptable. The reason I found Eliza so interesting was coming upon her as this anti-feminist. That was certainly the reputation that I'd heard and that she wrote, as you say, The Girl of the Period in 1868. But a little bit before, almost the same time, 1866, she had signed John Stuart Mill's petition for women's right to vote. I didn't know that. (laughs) It is definitely her. She signed it, Mrs. Eliza Lynn Linton Brantwood. I just found that disconnect absolutely fascinating and I wondered if it was entirely true what she wrote for the newspapers or if she was trying to further her career and writing what she felt editors and readers wanted to hear. I think that's very unfair. (laughs) I think, as I suggested, maybe it, what happened was she'd failed in her marriage and she went sour. I don't think she had a populist bone in her body. I don't think she ever tried to write what people wanted. <laughs> I think that's a way that contemporary feminists have tried to reclaim her, to suggest that it was actually good journalism and knowing her audience that led to that stuff. I don't think it was either. I think she was deeply conflicted 
not only did she sometimes support suffrage and sometimes not, she did argue for divorce to be made easier for women, for women's custody of their children, for married women to have property in their own names. So there were quite a few progressive oh, ideals. Yeah, she started that very early, yes, but she kept that going yes, through her life. that's right. So this was, was happening alongside what became an increasingly strident anti-feminist voice. And it did seem ironic, as you say, given her own career trajectory, that she was actually saying this is not women's sphere. Really, women should be in the home raising children. Rather strikingly, Octavia Hill, one of the people who founded the National Trust, took exactly the same view, which is politics is men's business. So two women who had carved out very, very rare single women lives in which they'd achieved a great deal and kept themselves both took that view. I find it fascinating. Even after her time here in Keswick, Eliza had several passionate relationships with women. Sue, could you explain? Yes, that's right. It's interesting that although her intellectual companions were mostly male, her closest emotional attachments were to women. We know for sure of three important relationships after the early one that we spoke about, Adeline Dalrymple. She had a passionate relationship with a woman who tried apparently to blackmail her because of their relationship and that led her to escape to Italy in the 1870s. But interestingly, she travelled in Italy with a young woman called Beatrice Sichel and they were clearly very close. We don't know, of course, the exact nature of that relationship but it was, was central to her life. It seemed to be the first of sort of more maternal relationships with young women rather than with women of her age. Late in life, we know that she had a motherly attachment to a young novelist called Beatrice Harridan. So clearly women were the focus of her emotional life. Although we mustn't forget to mention that she very nearly married a young Catholic Irishman at the time of her greatest happiness when she was suddenly earning money and becoming famous. The fact that it was a love affair of some significance can be seen in that in her will she left him various things to do with sentimental attachment about 40 years later. And they didn't get married, she says, because he would only do so if she would become a Catholic, Roman Catholic, and that she would not do. She was bisexual, I would say. Unravelling some of these relationships could prove quite difficult. I wonder if you can unravel it for us, Nicola. Very difficult. I think that's been shown by the fact that we sometimes don't know these women's real names. We just know their pseudonyms. We've all talked, I think, a little bit about the fictionalised autobiography, which is where we're getting a lot of this information from. That is the autobiography of Christopher Kirkland, which Eliza wrote and told everybody that it was a fictionalised version of her own life, but that she'd used a male persona in the title role to take the edge off the personal nature of it. There is trouble identifying people within that because not only was her gender switched, some of the other genders were switched. So William Linton becomes a woman, but then we also hear from people like her friend and biographer George Layard that the early relationship with the Polish emigre was not gender-swapped, so was still an older woman living in Keswick at the time. And he was close to Eliza, so we assume that he heard that from herself. 
It does get a little bit messy. There are layers on layers. You know, some of it is fictionalised. Then Layard takes that as fact. And in his biography, he often takes big chunks of text from Christopher Kirkland and just changes man for woman. We're not entirely sure if all of that is completely true to Eliza's life or if it's a little bit of a fictionalised version that has now been taken completely as fact. So we can't really say anything definitive, which I think probably has been the theme of this whole podcast and Eliza's life. She does reference these lesbian relationships in this book and in her other work. And she was friends with lesbians, so she was definitely within that sort of circle. And it's interesting that she chose to write about these relationships in her work, um, in The Rebel of the Family, and also within her autobiography. Is part of the problem that she couldn't express the details because of the mores of society at the time? That's very possible. Uh, Quite often, if we look at non-heterosexual, heteronormative relationships in the past, there is a lot of coding and covering up. So she does seem to be referencing these things obliquely under the cover of another gender. Um, We know that Anne Lister, Gentleman Jack, people might have seen that on TV, that um, her diaries were written in a code. So it certainly wasn't something that was spoken about openly. But as Eliza is referencing these things, she's not keeping them completely hidden. There's something to be said for her trying to potentially express that. We also know that at that time there were women openly living as lesbians together, although they didn't use that word. I'm thinking particularly of the ladies of Langothlan, who became a celebrated same-sex couple and were visited by Wordsworth, amongst others, and by Eliza Lynn Linton. So it's certainly not the case that there weren't role models, if you like, out there. Um, And I think I'm with Philippa that she was just deeply conflicted about various aspects of her own life. And that led to some degree of subterfuge, some degree of trying to protect other people. um, And and herself, trying to protect herself too, I suspect, don't you think? Yes, yes. I'm thinking too of her characters in what I think is one of her better novels, The Rebel of the Family, where the heroine, Perdita Wynne Stanley, seems very closely aligned with Eliza herself. She's a young woman in a repressive home environment, desperately wants to make her living in the world, have an income, become independent, and she meets a stereotypical lesbian woman. And the woman is presented as a rabid, wouldn't be too strong a word, advocate of women's rights, as a man-hater. And this is fascinating for Perdita, a.k.a. Eliza. But at the same time, as she feels attraction and fascination, she's repelled by aspects of this woman. Another potential thing that she could be doing in this autobiography where she gives herself a male persona is expressing a more complicated relationship with gender identity than a binary man-woman thing. She is quoted by Layard as saying that when she was born, a boy was due in the family and only the top coating miscarried. She's clearly very conflicted in and of herself about a lot of different things and possibly how she felt her relationship to being a woman, be that being 
in the constricted role of the time or in general was something that she was playing about with in Christopher Kirkland. Which does make her an extraordinarily interesting person to study. It's the birth of modern thoughts about what feminism is and changes in the roles of women. And if you want someone to exhibit the tensions, Eliza Lindenson is a pretty good person to study. Well, that was a lovely jaunt down the hill path to Leathwaite School, the modern school of Keswick. We came down past Crosswaite Gardens and turned down the avenue to the right, which led us past the playing fields to St Kentigan's Church. And uh, it's somewhere we have be before. We went to Rawnsley. Uh, that's quite a few episodes ago. But we're here again now. Let's continue from where we left off. Can you carry on with the story, Nicola? Yeah, so we've talked a little bit about Eliza's marriage and her separation, and she's now gone back to London. She's continuing to work as a journalist. She is writing a lot more novels in this period of her life in lots of different genres that got very mixed reviews. She doesn't stay in touch with her ex-husband. They never see each other again. Generally, it's a very cool relationship. He's moved to America. He's taken the children, but she does stay in touch with the children. She keeps up a lot of correspondence with particularly the girls, and she also spends a lot of her time at this period of her life mentoring young female authors. So people would send her manuscripts, and she would spend a lot of time correcting them and giving advice to younger authors. There's a very sad little story about William Linton coming over to London towards the end of his life and suggesting to Eliza that they meet up one more time for old time's sake basically and she refuses to do that. So from the time that he emigrated to America to the end of his life they never see each other again. Moving into her final years, what was her health like and who were her companions? Her health was steadily deteriorating. She had a lot of lung problems, bronchial pneumonia, we think. But she remained remarkably active. Her output in terms of letters was phenomenal. In one year, she wrote more than 2,000 letters. So she kept in touch with many of her old contacts. And as and when she was able, she travelled from London to visit them. She spent her last year or two in a flat in London, accompanied by a young author, Beatrice, who I think had a sort of daughterly come-carer relationship with her. She died of bronchial pneumonia in 1898. Well, we've come round to the western side of the church and tucked in right close to the walls is this rather large table tomb which I presume is the family grave as it were. There's various names on the crest and on the side and it's got Elizabeth, wife of W.J. Linton Esquire, born February the 10th, 1822, died 1898. So there you are, that's her resting place in the family vault. Nicola, can you describe that a little bit more to me? What's really interesting about this is that it's a family tomb. So she wasn't buried with her ex-husband or in London where she actually died. She requested to be brought back up to Keswick and be laid to rest here. The main gravestone on the top of the table tomb is for her father, James Lynn, who was the vicar of this parish. And that's why presumably it's such a big 
tombstone and so close to the church. There are other members of her family also buried here. Lucy, her older sister, is buried next to her. And the other interesting thing to note is that it's not so much her body that is laid here as her ashes. So she chose to be cremated, which was, again, very unusual at the time. We're not entirely sure why, but possibly related to her agnostic beliefs. Even though she was becoming ever more frail, I believe she did make a handful of visits back to this native heath. Yes, um, particularly she loved to visit the old vicarage at Crosthwaite and to sit in the garden and remember how it was. So despite her traumatic childhood, clearly the place had won her heart and it was what she regarded as her childhood home and the place where she wanted to end her days. I find it incredibly poignant that by the side of this family tomb in the churchyard, there is one little memorial stone. It's almost sort of like an afterthought or, or, you know, like an adjunct to the main tomb. And it says on it, beneath this tablet rest the remains of E. Lynn Linton, authoress, and then daughter of the vicar and so on. That is kind of her epitaph authoress in Crosswaite Churchyard. I've got a really nice quote from one of those visits to the vicarage that Sue talked about. So when she was 67, she went and was a guest of Canon Ronsley, who lived in the vicarage at that time. And she says, I went into the study and touched the old bookshelves and cupboards, looked into the pantry and the larder place where we had the flour bin. I feel half in a dream here. It is Keswick and yet not Keswick, as I am Eliza Lynn and yet not Eliza Lynn. Eliza wrote to Rawnsley just a few years before death and answers a question that people may be wondering, which is, why didn't she come back to Keswick? And she says, My heart clings to Keswick. Nothing but the climate prevented me from going back to live and die at the foot of the dear old mountains, which seemed exclusively ours. A wonderful reflection on a, a very special lady. We'll go back to the vicarage and have our final thoughts. Well, we've been down to the graveyard and said our farewells to Eliza. But on reflection, it would be nice to get your view on why do you think she's been forgotten? Uh, Starting with you, Nicola. It's a really interesting question. And I think, as with everything about Eliza, it is difficult to know exactly why. Probably for many reasons. But I think one of them is that she was quite controversial even at the time, not just with her writings on feminism, but with her writings on religion. While she was well known as a journalist, that hasn't necessarily translated into a long-lasting respect for her literary work. I think her anti-feminist writing is quite a difficult message for contemporary women to swallow. I mean, it gets more and more extreme, and we've only given examples from a couple of articles, but they pile one on another as her life goes on. I think also that her novels are really not all that good by contemporary novelistic standards. So they're interesting as bits of social history. They've got nice passages of purple prose here and there, but her characters are sort of stock types rather than individuals, and the plots are woeful, and they nearly all revolve around a young woman who has various conflicts in her life but ends up marrying the man she really loves, which, again, is not a great contemporary message. The Lake Country, I really don't know why it hasn't taken its place in the canon of Lake's guidebooks, 
The Times review of it said it was the best description of that part of England ever published. And Rawnsley said it's not likely to be superseded. 55 years later, after yes, it was written, he was, said that. That was 50 years after it came out. So why don't people know about it? You know, it's a magical, magical book. And I think anyone interested in the lakes ought to read it, but it's not known. It's not even easy to get hold of now. The three of us here, the first thing we said when we met each other was none of us understand why the lake country isn't in print. It needs to be done beautifully as the original was. The words are wonderful, actually. Nobody would not learn something from that book, and nobody, I don't think, who loved the Lake District would not enjoy it. Well, to round up this wonderful podcast, I'd like all of the three of you to take a journey back to a time in Eliza's life where you'd like to share a day with her, and what would that be? I'll start with Nicola. I would really like to spend the day with her while she was writing something, possibly in her early days of journalism, and just sort of try and understand her working process, ask her questions about what she's writing and how she's trying to frame it. I'm not sure if I'd get definitive answers, but I think I'd actually just like to spend the day talking with her about her work. And my time I'd like to share, I'd like to have been with her the first time that she saw the slate carriers in the Honister mines. It expresses who she is and her empathy for the ordinary person, instinctively, I think. It was simply appalling to see that small moving speck on the high crag passing noiselessly along a narrow grey line that looks like a mere thread and to know that it was a man with the chances of his life dangling in his hands. He draws to the roadside, every muscle strained, every nerve alive and every pulse throbbing with frightful force. It's a terrible trade and the men employed in it look wan and worn as if they were all consumptive or had heart disease. The average daily task is seven or eight journeys carrying about a quarter of tonne of slate each time. Sue? I'd like to have climbed up Helvellyn with her. This is based on her description of the Helvellyn area in the Lake Country. So she goes through how the scenery looks, the rare plants she discovers in the rocks, but then I think most crucially how the scenery and and the botany and everything make her feel. So she says, it's such a fine, rich sensation, that of wandering about these perilous places, so grand in their sublime loveliness, so magnificent in their dangerous beauty, that any amount of foolhardiness may be excused. It's worth whole years of tamer living in the plains, worth a generation time of living in the cities. It's like playing with a tiger of which we believe ourselves the master but which at any time may turn against us and crush our bones in the play that has flashed out into wrath. I think it would just have been magical to to spend time with her in the hills. Journey's end. <laughs> uh, we're back outside, Mark. The sun has lost none of its heat. It's coming up to five o'clock. Oh, it's hot out here, but uh, there is that breeze still. And we've been on something of a journey today. Um, lovely to go and see Eliza's grave. I have to say, you wouldn't know it was there, right? It's not like Rawnsley's with the sign or indeed Salvi's 
it was a bit unloved. We had to remove quite a large amount of foliage so that we could see it. It's all part of that story. She's almost totally forgotten about. And why? I don't think we got to the bottom of that. But what we can say is that her book, The Lake Country, is available. You can buy that book albeit it's nowhere near as beautiful as the original. And one of the highlights uh, today for, I know, you as well as me, Mark, we were showing an original copy of that book with the engravings from her ex-husband, of course, uh, in it. Wow, what, what a thing. And Philippa, of course, said she's worked in publishing for many, many decades. She said it's probably the most beautiful book she's ever seen. Well, that's quite something. I can endorse that. It's a heavy tome physically, but the quality of the writing is remarkably eloquent. But for me, as a pen artist, the illustrations are absolutely sublime. And I know for a fact that Wainwright loved William Linton's work. He does refer to it in Fell Wanderer. And I rather feel, looking through it, that the whole nature of it will have strongly impacted on him and given him the encouragement and belief that he could do something similar but in a modern guise that actually guided people through the fells. So this is the forerunner of all those pictorial guides. There we go. I mean, it's a theory, isn't it? I think we should say, but quite compelling. We'll end with our housekeeping mark. First up, Country Stride Live. Remind us where it is and when. Oh, we're at the Paris Centre in Ambleside on the 11th of November. That's a Saturday, the day before Remembrance Sunday. We are on episode number 110. For 109 previous episodes, www.countrystride.co.uk. Please do recommend us to anybody who loves the Lake District and Cumbria. To support us, you can buy our guidebooks. You can find all four, I think, five of them. Five, Five, right, at www.countrystride.co.uk. So if you want a fabulous walk guided by one Mark Richards, then they're there. Misguided. And finally, for as little as £2 per month, you can support us via Patreon. And you can find out how to do that as well at countrystride.co.uk. Next up, oh, I'm not quite sure what we're doing too far in the distance. Yeah, Christmas episode seems a lifetime away, but I'm sure it'll race towards us. Well, I'm going to try not to think about Christmas for now as I go for a lovely swim in Derwent Waters. So uh, for now, we're saying goodbye. Thanks for joining us today. And we'll see you on next fortnight's Country Stride. A bit of housekeeping to sign off on, Mark. Uh, oh, God. It's a pigeon. Yeah. There were three, were